latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast, where we interview academics and entrepreneurs at the front lines of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gumbari, and I am the deputy editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. If you like this episode and would like to support our work, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review and visit our website, the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. Welcome to the latest edition of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. Today, I have two very special guests, uh, Dr. Arun Sridhar and uh, Patrick Boyle, who will be discussing their very interesting recent paper titled Identifying Risk of Adverse Outcomes in COVID-19 Patients via Artificial Intelligence. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Hamid. And uh, thank you, CV Digital Health Journal, uh, for having us. No, we're really excited to talk about this paper. Super interesting, very timely paper. Um, but it's it really a, a, an interesting aspect of this paper is um, the very interesting collaboration between clinicians and the scientists involved. Can you kind of tell me a little bit about how, your collaboration and how this came out to be? Sure, absolutely. So <clears throat> I'm a member of the bioengineering faculty here at the University of Washington. And my lab's primary interest is using computational models and computational simulations to learn more about the underlying causes of cardiac arrhythmia to develop better ways of treating them and so on. Um, but the emergence of machine learning, artificial intelligence, and you know, unique tools like deep convolutional neural networks has really sort of begotten new opportunities to uh, to collaborate with our clinical counterparts. So at the best of times, I, you know, I want trainees in my lab to be working shoulder to shoulder with fellows, residents, and even attendings, and all the members of the team uh, in the clinical setting. And so that was uh, what first uh, brought Arun and I together um, to sort of spearhead these projects. And then I think, Arun, it's interesting to reflect on how we were originally planning on looking at a lot of different potential applications of machine learning, looking at ventricular tachycardias, looking at what we could predict from uh, ambulatory monitor data. But then, you know, once upon a morning in March 2020, we realized COVID-19 was upon us. And I think that was really where when we took a turn. Yeah. Just to add to it, uh, I mean... Um... We started collaborating before the pandemic, and uh, we were looking at some other projects to predict sudden cardiac death and uh, ventricular arrhythmias. And meanwhile, COVID pandemic crept on uh, to us. And at that point, like what we realized was uh, there was a risk of myocarditis with these COVID patients. And uh, there was also a big problem with gathering data in these patients. Like uh, people, uh, clinicians all around the world had to work with very minimal data. Every investigation that you undertook for these patients was um, not free of risk. Like a, a healthcare personnel will had to go inside and collect information. So getting ECGs and echocardiograms and MRIs was not simple anymore. And we wanted to see if we can find a way to simplify prognostication of COVID-19 patients using simple tools such as a single ECG. And 
I remember one morning, like me, Patrick, and one of our epidemiology colleagues. Um, so we we were just chatting and like we were wondering um, how we can uh, um, contribute to the pandemic, and we thought like okay maybe uh, we can look at the ECGs and see if we can find a simple tool to prognosticate COVID-19 patients. And that's how we got chatting and uh, we um, started this project. Really interesting. Um, let's d dive in a little bit deeper into the paper. So, um, so maybe you could set the stage for our audience a little bit about kind of t starting with the database. What kind of database did you use? What kind of data was in it? Um, and then we can dive into how you kind of analyze the data. Arun, did you want to tackle this one? This is uh, this was certainly yeah. I was new to this aspect of the study as an engineer. So uh, I we Arun and I worked on it together to build up a database from scratch. And I think we used the the RedCap system, which is hosted here at the Institute for Translational Health Sciences at the University of Washington. Uh, but it was all new to me, and we didn't have an existing database, and so we decided to build our own. Yeah, so um, when we started this uh, uh, project, Hamid, like we wanted to have a, a wide variety of data from um, uh, different patient, patient populations so that the tool is generalizable. We do not want to restrict it to the Seattle subpopulation of uh, subpopulation and we wanted to catch uh, patients from different regions of the world where the pandemic was, was already raging. Seattle was one of the first areas in the country to identify COVID and uh, become affected by COVID. Like our hospitals are full of COVID patients at that point, but still the numbers were not sufficient to uh, build a neural network on our own. So we quickly decided that we needed to collaborate with people and um, we reached out to many like-minded researchers within and outside the country. And uh, we identified a few centers in Europe who were willing to co cooperate. And uh, so we all got together and created a database uh, and uh, decided the variables that we, need, we needed to have in this database and started working on it. That's fantastic. So the database has patients who had diagnosis or had the suspicion of having COVID-19 and they had basic clinical data, and then they had a 1280CG, which was obtained at the time or before presentation to the hospital. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. All the patients oh. were confirmed COVID patients uh, with a PCR, and mm -hmm. um, uh, we had some basic clinical variables, and uh, uh, all of them had to have a, a ECG at ER or at admission uh, for inclusion into the database. Perfect. So, so tell me a little bit about the outcomes and how you educate, adjudicated the outcomes. Yeah, so we um, adjudicated the outcomes as uh, um, uh, death as well as major adverse cardiac, cardiovascular outcomes. And um, um, we also had a, a variable to tell what was it final uh, destination of these patients, uh, if it was not home, or was it hospice or was it comfort care? Um, and the basic idea was to make the uh, data gathering as simple as possible um, uh, and keep it to a bare minimum. So we had some basic clinical variables, including 
the overall um, respiratory and cardiovascular outcomes. And then uh, the, maze, uh, the major adverse cardiovascular outcomes was a combination of uh, heart failure, myocarditis, and uh, um, arrhythmias. And so we created an outcome which was, uh, uh, and we, uh, the way we classified the ECGs was, uh, was that basically we wanted to see if the patient met the criteria for a major adverse cardiovascular event, uh, plus or minus um, like a mortality. So, Patrick, do you want to expand on that a little bit more? I think, you know, reflecting on it, when we, when we embarked upon the project, you know, this was so early that at the time, we didn't really know what we were looking for. You know, at the time of, of project onset and the, and the first grant proposal that we wrote that, that, that gave us a, a little bit of funding to pursue the work, the main outcome that we thought we were going to be looking for was myocarditis. Because at that time in March 2020, you know, you didn't need to be a cardiologist or a bioengineer to read the New York Times or the Seattle Times, I guess I should say. And, and, and hear about, oh, one of the big complications here, the scary things that can happen is myocarditis. As the project evolved, you know, we realized, you know, not only was mortality on the table uh, as something that we might be interested in predicting, uh, but that there were other cardiovascular complications. So thromboembolic events was something that we, you know, when we set out to start designing this project, we didn't know that that's, what, that's one of the things that we would be looking we would be looking for, but it turned out to be one of the more common event types in the population of about 1,400 individuals that we eventually um, uh, enrolled in the database. Uh, so yeah, it was like like Arun said, you know, the name of the game here was to try and keep the data entry as simple as simple as possible. So this was all, you know, other than a small bit of funding, which we mostly used on our end for to, you know. Um, you know, for, for a research scientist and for, uh, you know, uh, some, some clinical support or some team support for database management, you know, all of our collaborators who were, you know, located uh, two hospitals in Sweden and one in Denmark, were just doing this work on a, you know, on spec, basically. They weren't, you know, this wasn't funded research for anybody. And so we needed to make sure that it was as, as straightforward and simple as possible. Um, and so it was, you know, put a place for them to upload the intake EKG and then have, you know, the, the most feasible amount of um, the, the largest amount of clinical information that was feasible to do for a large number of patients in a short time frame. So, um, so the, just to understand how, how you guys set up the, the prediction problem, you, you have, you have a large database of COVID-19 patients and an ECG, a 12 lead ECG and the input into your model is the 12 ECG with baseline characteristics. And um, from, can you explain how you, how you broke down the, the 12 ECG into something that you can enter into the model? Was it a two-dimensional matrix time series? If you could expand a little bit on that. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it's actually a really interesting, um, I, I don't know if I would say there's a controversy, but there is certainly uh, many different ways that we can go about this. Our approach was to use time series data. And so we had, um, you know, for each 12 lead ECG, um, we, you know, decimated all of the, uh, all of the signals to the same, 
uh, sampling frequency because some machines record at different sampling frequencies than others. And then we basically had an array of, um, you know, with eight rows and as many columns as there were time samples in each, um, in each ECG uh, lead. Now, what you might have noticed is that I said eight by n, not 12 by n. And the reason why we do that is because the um, multiple leads on the 12 lead ECG are redundant with each other. They contain mutual information. And so um, we remove the augmented uh, limb leads and the um, and one of the primary limb leads, either one, two, or three. Um, and that's because um, those signals are linear combinations of the other existing signals, and we don't want to overtrain the network to bias it towards uh, the information in those leads. Uh, but yeah, you know, the alternative would be to use the image files themselves, sort of an image of the ECG recording, um, as input to the uh, uh, to the deep convolutional neural network. And you know, we tested both uh, opportunities or options, and we found that from a computational standpoint it was more efficient to use uh, the time series data and to do one-dimensional convolutions on the uh, on the ECG signals as opposed to using the images. Um, but I think that, you know, there's just as, uh, there's a lot of other opportunities to to explore the, the, the alternative. No, I'm a big fan of how you actually did it uh, as well. I find it to be way more computationally um, doable than, than just doing the image. So... Um, super interesting. So, so uh, you have a five thousand by eight uh, two-dimensional matrix as the input of the ECG. So, can you, um, you know, I, I love talking about the DNN structure. So, may, can you take me through the DNN structure? Now, we understand the input, we understand the output. Uh, if you could just take me through the, the 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 structure of the network that you set up, and what was the kind of general purpose of each. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So the, uh, the 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 two networks actually had different structures ultimately. So we ended up training two sort of final candidate networks: one for differentiating between um, you know death and uh, and survival, and the second was a um, a multi-output network uh, that estimated independently the probability. Uh, that that ECG came from someone who experienced one of or multiple of thromboembolic events, arrhythmic events, uh, heart, heart failure. failure events, or none of the above. Um, and so just from a top-level standpoint, that output layer uh, is a big difference between those two networks because doing a binary prediction versus doing independent predictions of four different labels uh, are, are rather different beasts. Um, diving into the into the detail of the individual layers, um, so for example, our death versus survival uh, network had three uh, convolutional neural network layers, um, each of which were, uh, or I'm sorry, I misspoke, two convolutional layers, each of which were followed by batch normalization and uh, rectified linear units. And so these are Sort of, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to go into too much, uh, too much detail. But essentially, these are sort of perturbations uh, that are introduced in order to jiggle the weights of the network around, um, so that the you know all much of this in service of you know avoiding the um, avoiding the overtraining of the network to particular signals. 
Um, so it's something that we struggled with from, you know, from day one on this project was that when we were working with a small sample size for our prototype networks, and we knew that even in the best case scenario, you know, we weren't going to be able to recruit hundreds of thousands of patients for this project. We were aiming at the outset to, to collect 1,500, and we ended up recruiting around 1,400. Um, and so overfitting to particular uh, particular samples was always going to be a major issue. And so that was the purpose of a lot of the sort of, um, you know, the uh, operations that we attempted. Uh, some of the features even that didn't um, make it into the final network that were uh, sort of optimized out as part of the hyperparameter tuning process um, included the, the, the use of dropout layers, for example. Uh, so Amber, the talented data scientist at Tsihua Chen, who was the first author, or second author on the paper um, and sort of the lead technical person in my lab, concluded that it was just not worth the extra computational effort um, to include that in the in the final networks. Yeah, I hope that gives kind of a broad overview. I don't want to go into too, too much detail. No, I, I love nerding out about this stuff. So this is great. Um, okay, so you have a series of repeating um, layers. These layers, are, you know, you're using general structure like ReLU, batch normalization, and convolutional networks. So you generate a set of features um, from the 12ADCG, um, and then I, you have a softmax layer as you have a fully connected layer, and then you have a softmax layer which outputs, I assume, and probability for the outcome of your interest. Okay, uh, so uh, I think I understand the the structure very well now. It's uh, it. So to, to tell me a little bit about the results now. So okay, this the, the network looks really interesting and robust. So what did you find? Arun, I think you should tackle this one. What did you think of the results? <laughs> well, um, that was... Well, maybe you, could tell, you could maybe just tell me specifically about the results, like what features predicted were, were more robust for predicting the outcome of interest. Okay. Why don't you um, go ahead and uh, talk about that, uh, Patrick, and I'll um, go into the clinical significance of the model. Sure, certainly. So the... Um, you know, to take a step back before we talk about the, the results of the deep learning uh, models, it's important to highlight the fact that, you know, working with the epidemiologists on our team, Allison Fauner, uh, we were able to create conventional statistical models. Uh, so just straightforward logistic regression models using um, the comorbidity information and the demographic information about the patients, as well as um, metrics automatically extracted from the ECGs. That was something really important for us from the outset of the project because we, we didn't want to just say, oh, we have such and such area under the curve. This is the predictive power of our machine learning model and leave it at that. We wanted to be able to compare it to something. And I don't want to treat either of them as gold standard per se, but we wanted to have a standard. Uh, and so when we look, when we take a step back and look at the uh, the receiver operator characteristic curves, um, you know, frankly, the, the the predictive capabilities of these models across the board for this cohort was were, were modest. Uh, so we had area under the curve uh, values 
uh, averaged across tenfolds of cross-validation in the case of the deep neural uh, networks on the order of you know between 0.55 and 0.65. And, you know there were some lucky guesses, some sort of you know um, fortuitous lottery tickets, if you will, where with a certain permutation of you know of the ECGs and patient records, you know if we had just taken the best of each uh, for each configuration, uh, then you know uh, and go forward with it. You know, then it would appear that the model had, you know, extraordinary predictive capability with area under the curve around, uh, you know, 0 0.8, 0 0.85. Uh, but when we did this sort of rigorous cross-validation process, we can uh, we can appreciate the fact that some of that is just the benefit of random chance, and that taking, you know, taking into stock the in the totality of the problem, the like I said, the predictive capability of the models. Uh, was relatively modest. But what we found most interesting was that there wasn't a tremendous difference between the, uh, the predictive capability of the, um, the deep convolutional networks, neural networks, and the, uh, and the conventional models. So the difference in area under the curve was on the order of 0.1, maybe even less in the context of the, um, of the network designed to, to predict MACE. And so that gave us a, a sense of perspective on these results, and I don't consider them negative results. You know, some some people who we've talked to the to this study about have said, "Well, this is you know, this is cool that you're you're presenting a negative result." And to my mind, it's not necessarily a negative result; it's a result, and it's a result that says, you know, in this context, you know, regardless of which methodology is applied, this is a difficult problem to solve. It's a difficult thing to predict. COVID-19 outcomes from ECGs or ECGs and demographic data or all of both of those things with comorbidity data. And, um, and so that was, you know, the, to, to us, it was a, it was an interesting finding. Arun, maybe you want to put it in perspective clinically. Yeah. I mean, so like, uh, like uh, Patrick was saying, one of the most important things for us was to see if how it, um, compares to a conventional statistical model which uses quite a bit of variables. Uh, and we did that um, just to see uh, how good we can um, predict using a conventional statistical model uh, per se, and also to see if we can do that with minimalistic data. And that was the point of the project. And uh, like like Patrick mentioned, the, the model that used just a simple ECG was comparable to a model which used uh, uh, a lot of demographic as well as background clinical data. And uh, uh, when, when, when I see that, there are a couple of things. Number one is, it is possible that there is no signal from the ECG that can be extracted to, uh, 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 to be worthwhile for clinical utility. That is one possibility, yes. But the second possibility is that maybe the uh, model is reasonable for for achieving that um, uh, AUC with minimalistic data but if you combine it with a few more variables you could have a much more robust result now we did not do the second part of it to see if we can give the neural network a little bit more data and see if we can come to a better prediction model and uh, that is those are the next steps for our uh, collaboration but um, assuming that uh, this um, uh, result was negative per se it was is I think a very simplistic uh, conclusion. So, um, and when you look at our statistical model, Hamid, like and this was in uh, this statistical model compared pretty well to some of the other 
um, literature that was published uh, during the same time uh, in the pandemic uh, using the thousands and thousands of patients uh, across the different continents. So our, uh, the, the prediction power of our statistical model was conventional statistical model was equally comparable. And our ECG model, the bare minimal ECG model was also equally comparable to these larger prediction models that were gathered using very large databases. It certainly is a very difficult problem to tackle, and I commend you guys for really doing a great job of doing that. Um, one of the problems that come, you know, and that comes up with when you're dealing with something like COVID-19 is the dynamic nature of treatment of the disease that you're getting post-ECG. So, in your next iteration, how how could you tackle that problem? Like, right? So, how how can I account for a dynamic nature of treatment in my model? We had some of that uh, even during our database collection, Hamid. Like we started our project in March of 2020 when the pa pandemic was just getting known uh, in the uh, US and it was already raging in Europe. And uh, uh, the outcomes of uh, these initial COVID-19 patients was uh, much worse compared to some of the later months. So when we finished our data collection in September, things had already changed. Um, so the way we tackled it was uh, we, we subsetted our patients in the first few months and the last few months, and we saw if there was any difference in the model prediction ability, and we did not find that. And we also tried to exclude the patients post-September just, just for this factor. We did not want uh, 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 that to be biased by the natural course of the uh, pandemic. Uh, where, where the treatments were getting better, people were getting more knowledgeable, patients were getting integrated less. And as we were gaining more knowledge, the outcomes were getting much better. Um, going forth, I think it's going to be a, a difficult problem. Like uh, In the pandemic, we have seen that uh, the treatment and management protocols differ between the uh, centers, uh, but they also differ uh, tremendously based on the variant of the disease. And that is a huge problem. So, and so when you are comparing uh, an Omicron variant to a Delta variant, you cannot have a same model which works for both. Like it has to be a separate model. So these things need to be accounted for. I think uh, uh, every researcher who looks at COVID should be restricting themselves to a single variant or a, a few centers which have similar style of management and uh, uh, the same amount of resources. So you cannot be comparing the management protocols in a developing world to a developed world, and, and you shouldn't be uh, like equating the resource-constrained nations with the um, uh, nations which have like more dearth of resources. Yeah, I think you know you raise a really interesting point, Hamid, with regards to you know I, I think it, it it opens the door to a bigger picture discussion which is, you know, considering the use of machine learning tools like this in the context of longitudinal data collection. So when we have dozens or hundreds of measurements taken serially from the same person over and over again, you know, someone who's hospitalized with COVID, okay, or, so, or any other treatment, you know, perhaps a future pandemic, who knows, God forbid. But you know, we have tools at our fingertips, sometimes literally on our fingertips, 
to take measurements from these patients day after day after day after day after day. And what to me as an engineer, one of the really interesting, I guess, operating modes that machine learning could take is not a, not trying trying to answer the question, um, you know, if someone is going to have an adverse outcome, but rather when they're going to have an adverse outcome. And, you know, if we can if we can create you know heuristic models to give an early warning signal, you know, this is totally off the beaten path of cardiology research, but one of a huge research trajectory here in the Pacific Northwest deals with trying to pick up just the faintest, faintest signal of a possible earthquake or a volcanic eruption. And so I think that as the, you know, we're really in the infancy of the deep learning era as it's applied in, um, in fields like electrophysiology. And I think as it continues to flourish and as it continues to blossom, what we're going to be able to embrace is these new research paradigms for looking at things like can we do like a really you know a, a super early warning signal and maybe the error bars on those early warning signals are wide you know but if it's enough information that it can pinpoint individuals with a certain amount of sensitivity and specificity who are maybe incrementally at higher risk or nominally at higher risk then that could be really powerful I, I love this idea of, of starting out at least with the ECG as a digital biomarker that serves as, you know, the early warning sign for, you know, hemodynamic compensation, for example, or heart failure, rehospitalization. And I think that I hope that you continue on, on this path and because I think it, although, you know, the results in, in this particular problem didn't, we're in 100% predictive, but I think this this approach is very interesting and very promising in cardiology, um, and uh, we hope to see more of this, um, and I'm sure we will. Um, you know, I want to kind of cap our conversation a little bit uh, by an observation, an observation of like how good of a collaboration you the two of you have. Um, so maybe you could tell me a little bit about that experience and what you think uh, makes a good collaborator because as, as I'm sure you've experienced and I'm, I have experienced is it's, it's a bit of a challenge to, you know, find the correct clinician. If you're the engineer and from a clinician, find the, the, the right engineer to work with and have a long term relationship and tackle really difficult problems Particularly, I found it difficult to align incentives long term. So, if you could maybe just kind of touch on that um, and, and tell me what, how how you made this work. Maybe I can get started, Patrick, and then we can chip in. So, I think uh, you you are absolutely correct, Hamid. I think it is extremely difficult to find collaborators who are aligned in a, uh, towards a common goal and. Um, uh, I think one of the keys is that we need to understand that any collaboration um, has to be successful and um, uh, uh, practical uh, for 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 the all the collaborators involved. Um, as an example, when we started this uh, when when we started this project during the early pandemic, we were uh, two collaborators, and Ali uh, was our epidemiologist, who was also 
uh, like one of our early collaborators and we were thinking about the project one thing we realized that was that like our data was not going to be enough and we had to find other collaborators and uh, when we got them on board it was a enriching experience for all of us um, so, uh, some of our collaborators from europe uh, in karolinska and uh, um, uh, in, in sweden like they were extremely experienced collaborators and uh, they brought a very enriching experience for all of us and uh, they gave us a lot of insights on building this database and like each variable was thoroughly discussed and this was a lot of time for uh, and effort for all the people involved and but we all knew that we were working towards a common goal of solving this problem during a pandemic and that brought us together uh, in a non pandemic setting this this uh, common goals can sometimes get lost in in the day to day activities and you kind of lose the bigger picture but as long as uh, uh, the collaborators understand that ultimately what you're doing is beneficial to the humanity and to the patients that we're serving i think that that common goal can be uh, achieved and uh, like we all know what the end goal is and uh, uh, the day to day rigor becomes much more simpler yeah i think the you know this is something i feel very passionately about i mean so i'm glad you asked the um there's an existential question for bioengineers and biomedical engineers and it's been around as long as we've had departments that are called that and the question is who are we <laughs> you know what do we do why would someone want to hire a biomedical engineer to work on the electrical part of their biomedical product when they could just hire an electrical engineer instead? And the same is true for mechanical engineers and and chemical engineers. And my answer to the question has always been the people who are trained in our programs, we spend a lot of time training them to be bilingual in the language of the clinic and the language of the engineering lab. And so trainees who come through my lab, I want them to be as often as possible sitting in on meetings with fellows, you know, talking to folks like Arun all the time and being able to, you know, I don't expect them to leave our undergraduate program or their MS or PhD program and be able to run a clinical trial, but I want them to be able to understand what different randomization strategies mean and why you might use those and why blinding is so important, why as people as clinical trialists know they're complex concepts and so i think that you know being able to you know not only have my trainees who can meet someone like a rune halfway but have a rune who's someone who's worked on multiple different engineering projects multiple different machine learning projects make an effort to be conversant and fluent in the language that we're speaking when we're trying to design these um, you know convolutional neural networks I think that's really, you know, it's the it's going to become the new normal for collaboration between engineers and clinicians, in my opinion. And so I think that it's something where we've been very fortunate. We've had, you know, we've had tremendous success in terms of working with a large international, multinational, multi-continental, multi-time zone group of investigators. Uh, but all of it boils down to that fundamental principle of sort of technical and and medical bilingualism. And so that's I think really what what we've what we've built upon. 
Thanks, Patrick. And uh, one more thing to that, Amit, like I think understanding the limitations um, is is extremely important. I feel like as somebody who has dabbled with some amount of programming but doesn't have formal training in programming, and I can tell you that I, I could spend days programming stuff, but I could never be as good as one of my collaborators who could achieve that in, in the matter of a, a few hours. And at the same time, like I need to understand what my strengths are. Like my strengths are um, to provide the clinical perspective and solve the clinical problem that come uh, like right from the data gathering standpoint to uh, ultimately making sense of the data. And uh, those are my strengths. And the same goes for the other side. Like uh, uh, they, are, they are very good at programming and they're very good at creating the patterns out of the data, but um, the clinical perspective has to come from the other side. So I think understanding the strengths is extremely important, but also understanding the limitations and also not trying to do too much and being able to know when to delegate uh, certain activities to certain uh, um, staff is very important uh, for a successful collaboration. No, definitely you guys uh, are showing many people that listen to the, to this podcast and that are the readers of the journal how this collaboration could actually work uh, so i want to thank you and congratulate you on this fascinating and important paper and i look forward to having many more conversations on this topic thank you so much we are extremely excited uh, that the paper found a home in CVDHJ, and we've been really impressed with uh, the early public reaction to it. So we're we're, we're both extremely pleased, and, the, and we I think we speak on behalf of the whole team. So thank you for having us. Thank you very much.